Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. Join us as we dive into the topics mainstream media is too frightened to mention and chase the awkward truths our politicians would rather we did not know. Tonight we are going to indulge in a little bit of history with the former Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs and now Senior Fellow John Roscombe. Roscombe also taught political theory at the University of Melbourne, a profession I imagine would be quite dangerous in today's wokest thrall, and he was also the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The topic for today is the Magna Carta, that towering historical item that everyone is aware of, although most probably have no idea what it is, and certainly most have never read it. Now, John has co-authored a book with Chris Berg titled Magna Carta, The Tax Revolt That Gave Us Liberty. John joins us now. John, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Thank you. And it's great to be talking about such an important topic, tax, 800 years on, tax doesn't go away. I've actually uh, got your book here as proof that I have read it and I did love it. Now, I was actually about to pack up for the year and head off to the beach when I saw the IPA email come through with the promotion for this book. Now, offering someone like me free books is like leaving a box of chocolates on the desk. It gets snaffled up immediately. So I end up spending my holiday with your novel. John, the Magna Carta is one of those elusive, mysterious historical things that's treated a bit like Moses's stone tablets. Firstly, what is the Magna Carta? Where did it come from? And why did you decide to make it the topic of your co-authored book? We decided to write about the Magna Carta on the 800th anniversary of its agreement back in 1215. And what we wanted to do was educate Australians, and now the book is sold worldwide, not just about our history, but about some really important principles that we need to fight for and that we need to understand. So the idea that the king is subject to the people is very important. The idea that we have the rule of law whereby someone can't be imprisoned uh, without a trial. The idea that all of us are subject to the law are really important issues that we still live with every single day. So that's what motivated us to go back and explain in layperson's terms what the Magna Carta was and is and why it's relevant. So in very simple terms, Alexandra, it was an agreement between King John and some barons who had rebelled against his high tax policies. So where have we heard that before? And they were engaged in a revolt against his rule to settle the debate, the argument, the civil war, the barons and King John came together at a place called Runnymede on the banks of the Thames in June 1215 and they agreed to a deal whereby the king promised not to tax outrageously, the barons promised to behave. They put in a whole series of provisions about the rule of law, as I said, and which we can talk about. And as usually happens in agreements between governments and barons or governments and the people, within a few months, it was ripped up. It was null and void. The barons were back engaging in civil war against King John. Um, he was to die the following year. Um, but the significance of the Magna Carta and what had happened in 1215 is that 
future kings realised that if they were to rule with the consent of barons and ultimately rule with the consent of people, they would have to continue to make the sorts of promises that were embodied in the Magna Carta. And then over the years, the Magna Carta became more and more influential, not just for what it actually said, but what it was meant to symbolise and, and came to a fore in the English Civil War in the debate between the Parliament and King Charles I, whereby the Parliament said, you can't levy taxes without our permission, and the King paid for that debate with his head. And ever since the English Civil War, the Magna Carta has been a touchstone for the sorts of rights and liberties that we think are so important. So it's been taken to now represent the importance of the freedom of the press and freedom of the debate, rule of law. As I said, the idea that the parliament uh, has the king subject to it, or in these days, the prime minister or the executive, um, and also the idea that we all have access to justice. So at Is very many levels, the Magna Carta was significant for 800 years. Is it a single document? Is it a book? I mean, a lot of people have never seen it. They don't know what it looks like. Do we still have a copy of it? Fantastic question. So um, the Magna Carta today, as we understand it, so it's called the Great Charter to distinguish it from a few other agreements that had been made basically in relation to forests and woodland, yeah. which was a key issue for debate Remember between the Robin, barons and Remember the kings. Robin Hood so thing, the whole forest in England was a very, very contentious topic for, between kings and the peasantry, that's for sure. Ab abs and, that's, and that's where firewood came from, where fuel came from, and, of course, um, where food came from. So um, the Magna Carta uh, is about 3,000 words in Latin. It's written on parchment, on um, sheepskin, and it was, if you were to write it out, it would take about eight hours. Um, there are four extant original copies of the Magna Carta back from 1215. We don't know whether there was ever a single document that had been agreed between the barons and King John, but what we have now are four copies, two in the British Library, a copy in, uh, in Salisbury and a copy in Lincoln in the UK. And we then have other uh, reissues of the Magna Carta in the centuries after, and there's a, even a copy of the Magna Carta from about 100 years later in our parliament here in Canberra. People think the Magna Carta was signed, and we tend to say the Magna Carta was signed by the king. Well, it wasn't. There's no evidence that uh, King John could write. It was sealed um, with a piece of wax. Um, and when the Magna Carta was agreed upon, we assume there were several dozen copies at the time, and it was sent all through the kingdom and read out um, to local communities as a symbol of the agreement between the barons and the king, and as a way of calming, as I said, what was a difficult situation because England was in civil war. So today we have four original copies left. That's pretty extraordinary that we still have these copies. Now, before we get too much further into the historical context of the Magna Carta, 
Just to, to bring it back to today's politics, are you noticing a bit of a history fetish starting to return? After all, we are living through an age of re-education and neo-Marxist revisionism where the only history our children are seeing is politically motivated fiction for the most part. But when Her Majesty the Queen died, there was a tangible air of nostalgia, particularly for English history, and this, the Commonwealth appeared to be longing to understand where it belongs in the biggest story of Western civilization. Now, your book makes a complex piece of history quite accessible. Are you hoping to see some kind of revival in historical tales like the Magna Carta and what they mean for Western civilization? Well, ab absolutely. And you're dead right about um, the death of uh, Elizabeth II. Um, English history is now, as the IPA and Dr. Bella de Brera have documented, has almost been extinguished from uh, teaching in our universities. Um, there's very little English or British history in the national curriculum. Some students will learn about the Magna Carta, but they'll be more, most likely to learn about the Magna Carta in primary school, where its full importance may not be understood. But um, for someone such as me, British history is a story of parliamentary democracy. It's the story of our freedoms. It's the story of the freedom of the press, all of which are British concepts. Now, exactly as you said, we've got uh, young people today being told about the alleged racism of, of the British and of, of British colonialism. But remember, it was the British that stopped slavery. That's not a story that young people are going to be told these days anymore. I think the debate about Australia Day is significant um, because we need to understand that the things we take for granted are British. If they're not British, they're most likely to be European. And the point about that is these are not concepts just for British uh, descendants or Europeans. They are concepts for all humanity. And so um, as I talk about in, in the book, Nelson Mandela came out of prison. He talked about the Magna Carta being an inspiration for his freedom. Uh, during the Cold War in Eastern Europe, in the battles against communism, dissidents would talk about the ideals of the Magna Carta and about freedom and about freedom of conscience. So I think as young people are not learning history, but as young people are wanting to know where they belong in the great story of humanity, we are finding a renewed interest. And one of the most exciting things about the sale of this book is that as far as we can tell, it is young people gobbling up this history because they want to know the past and they want to know where they belong in, this, in our wonderful story. I'm not sure. You mentioned there the idea of the, the fact that uh, the English ended slavery. Now, there's a whole YouTube phenomena devoted to young people, younger than me, people who are just leaving school, particularly African-Americans who are reacting to videos about the end of slavery. And they cannot believe the lies that they were told in school and what the real story of history actually is. They had no idea that the African slave traders were indulging in this activity for thousands of years before England was even a thing. And so there is definitely a resurgence of history, but young people have to find it themselves. It's not 
being taught to them in school, it's the free market of ideas and the internet that is bringing this knowledge to them. Now, John, I can't avoid it any longer. Tax reform isn't usually the first topic that people pick when writing, you know, an historical romp through history. Now, you wrote, and I quote, Ultimately, the limits to taxation embedded in the Magna Carta took on a life of their own, giving us the essential building blocks of modern democratic liberty. From the provisions of the Magna Carta came the principle of the rule of law, that every person, including the king, is subject to the law. The Magna Carta is also the key to the development of the English common law, whose principle that law should evolve gradually and organically is one of the foundations of the liberal legal order. All this came from the Magna Carta's limits on the power of the state to tax, end quote. There aren't many fans of tax, John. You're going to have to explain yourself. How does a tax system create a framework for liberty? And please don't let me be misunderstood. I am no fan of tax either. <laughs> but we also need to understand what tax has done and what tax in, in the 13th century in England did. So boil down tax is the government taking our labour. The government is taking our time. So today when we talk to young people about levels of tax and, and they say, well, maybe 50% of uh, your income going to the government might be legitimate, and you say, well, that's fine, but um, you do realise that means you're working for half the week for someone else. You're not working for yourself. And they say, oh, well, labour is different. Income is one thing, labour is another. But as you explain to people, Tax is a imposition on our labour, what we do with our time and what we do with ourselves. And the point about tax is that other than the government uh, coercing you to do things against your will, other than the government using violence against you, it is an action the government does to you. It's an action someone else imposes upon you. So it's completely understandable. Um, the tax would be that friction point between the citizen and a king. And so um, what happened in 1214, uh, King John was engaged in wars on the continent. Uh, he was defending the Angevin Empire in, in France. Uh, as so often happened uh, to English kings, they lost battles. They needed to dramatically increase tax. And when we're talking about dramatically increasing taxes, back in those days, a very heavy tax was regarded as something like 10% of your income or capital, if only that was the case today. And uh, then when King John was levying taxes, when he was losing battles, it was then the barons who were the main tax-paying uh, authorities, the magnates of the land, and there were about 200 of them in England at this time. About 40 were rebelling against King John. About 40 were on his side. The rest were in the middle. They said, we can't afford these taxes. Not only can we not afford these taxes, but you're doing all these other things to us as well. You're taking our sons and daughters as hostages for the payment of, of taxes. Um, you're not allowing us to trade. You are imposing arbitrary charges upon us. And all of these things came together to give us the Magna Carta. So not that there might be anything good in tax, um, but as, as happened 800 years ago, tax then did give rise to all of these important concepts that we're talking about today. Well, we're just going to go to a quick break, but we'll be right back in just a moment. 
Welcome back. We're here with John Roskam talking about the Magna Carta. And John, as you were setting the scene for the Magna Carta, you explained that it was a, a piece of parchment effectively, you know, marked in a field outside London near Runnymede, you know, nearby Windsor Castle in June 2015. Now, you set the scene for this historic piece as a rather unassuming meadow next to the Thames. Now, you'd imagine that such an important place for Western civilization would be, I don't, I don't know, commemorated in some way by the English. They'd have some kind of massive shrine or a building or a park. How did the Brits honour their sacred place for democracy? Well, that's a great question. And for many years, the Magna Carta wasn't talked about for the first 50 to 100 years because it was part of an ongoing debate between um, kings and, and barons and, and magnates. But it was then only later, as people were trying to assert their rights against overbearing kings, that the Magna Carta became as important as it is. So um, today there's a plaque, today there's a, a small um, pergola where they think the Magna Carta was agreed to, um, but we're not sure because the course of the River Thames has moved, um, the area was flooded, and interestingly, there's even debate around when the Magna Carta was agreed. Some people think it was the 15th of June. Other eminent historians say it was a few days later. So it's not unlike the Declaration of Independence in some ways because there's debate around how exactly that was agreed to. So it's interesting that something becomes as symbolic and as important as this, but it starts off rather small. And it's an interesting example of how we invent our own history. We go back into history to find antecedents for things that we have always regarded as important. And one of the things that occurred to the Magna Carta in the 16th and 17th century was this debate about what it actually was. Where did the rights come from? And there were quite a number of historians at the time who said the Anglo-Saxons have always had these rights and it was the evil Norman kings who came and imposed themselves on us. And so there's arguments that in Anglo-Saxon times there were um, the beginnings of a parliament, there was the beginnings of a council around the king, and it was only foreign invaders that took away the, uh, the birthright of the British. One of the things that those historians don't mention is that when the Normans arrived in 1066, in Britain, some 10% of the population, some two of the two million population were slaves. And uh, one of the things that isn't much talked about is uh, that for all of the faults of the Norman kings, what they ended was slavery in, in Britain, which was widely practised by the Anglo-Saxons at the time. Well, what I find uh, really interesting, well, actually, the moment when I was reading your book and I decided that, yes, I was going to spend the rest of my beach holiday finishing it, was when I saw that it was the Americans who ended up building the shrine to commemorate the Magna Carta. And now it's got a little uh, message that says to commemorate Magna Carta, symbol of freedom under law. They were quite disturbed when they found out the Brits hadn't done anything about it. And, and as we know, Americans take liberty quite seriously and they were determined that there would be some mark for this wonderful thing. Now, what's especially interesting is the state of Britain when this document was signed, you know, in that meadow, it was chosen for strategic purposes because 
the king was warring with the barons and they wanted to feel safe when they were meeting, they couldn't be encircled by another army. Now, John, it's astonishing how much of Western civilization's peaceful and libertarian ideas were forged in the middle of conflict. Well, that is so often the case as we seek to end conflict. Um, and it's sometimes conflicts, rebellions, revolts, where we begin to understand what is important. And I think um, you put your finger on something so important, and many of the British have talked about this, that it was the Americans, exactly as you said, who thought, well, we need to do something in this special place. And for um, the Americans who, who perhaps take freedom a little bit more importantly and, and, uh, and value it a bit more highly than the British through their war of independence, through the Civil War, um, through conflicts in the First and Second World War, who've understood that it's in conflict we are tested and it is in conflict, hopefully, where there's some resolution um, that, that emerges. And one of the things that we take for granted in Australia is because we have been largely conflict-free, we haven't had to fight for our democracy. We haven't had to fight for freedom of speech. We haven't had to fight for freedom of religion. We tend to think, A, that governments are always benign, and that is not the case. We tend to think that we can take freedom of speech and freedom of thought for granted, and that's not the case. And we can look at Australia today as we see the government, for example, uh, with ever-expanding plans to uh, censor the internet. And we need to understand that the freedoms we enjoy came with the British, came with British settlement and were fought for and people died for them. And so it's incumbent upon us to recognise that, respect that, and not let our freedoms go the way of freedoms as they have in other parts of the world. Well, I mean, you're completely right. But one thing you did mention a little bit earlier was that there was no evidence that King John was actually literate, that he could sign these documents. And that's not uncommon. It's certainly not a thing for England because a lot of the world was uh, unable to read or write back then. If you go back to the Egyptian kings and before that, one of the biggest concerns was that their scribes were having communications with each other against the wishes of the the king. But what I really want to get at is modern politicians, they are literate. They're some of the most educated politicians we've ever had. And yet the policies that they're making are some of the most woeful economic and libertarian policies we've ever seen. In fact, they're totalitarian. Are you dismayed to see that back then there were good policies being made by illiterate kings and now we've got literate kings writing terrible policy? Well, I think you've summed up a lot of the problem with our politicians today. Um, and it hasn't always been the case. Um, what we have in the Australian Parliament, for example, the Federal Parliament, I'd argue is a Parliament of lawyers. I have a legal background. The very last person you want to hand a law over to or a contract to is a lawyer because they will always make it more complicated than it needs to be. They will always add detail. They will always look um, for loopholes. But what the Magna Carta does is it sets out some really important principles. So um, while people might not know, or if they know of the Magna Carta, might not know the details of all 63 chapters, and some of the chapters are pretty esoteric, they would have a rough idea about this principle that 
taxes can't be levied without the permission of the people in, in some way. And we lose the idea that principles are important. So for someone like me growing up, a Ronald Reagan who explained something simply, who didn't overcomplicate the situation and who said, well, look, as complex as some things might be, there are key principles that we need to understand. And again, when you look at the world around us today, um, the politician who, for me, sums that up and infuriates the left is someone like Donald Trump, who speaks in principle, who speaks sometimes misspeaks, but who captures an essence of something that the lawyers in Parliament want to sometimes neglect, forget about and and ignore. And again, that's the power of the Magna Carta. You don't need to know Latin and King John was speaking French to the barons. You don't need to know French. You don't need to know 800 years of British history to understand there's something really important about this idea that citizens have rights. The goddamn French, they're in everything. You know, I actually saw uh, Jonathan Sumption describe um, our English and French history as a history of siblings because it's so deeply intertwined. You can't explain English history without looking at French history. But that's a, a different topic altogether. Now, there's a lot of rebellion against taxation at the moment, and I'm feeling pretty aggressively hostile toward the government, knowing I have to hand over so much money to a regime that might very well turn around and gift it to a foreign terrorist organisation. Now, your book details the great tax revolts of the ancient world, and I feel like leading another one of those, and I'm sure I'm not alone, but originally, tax was meant to be an exchange of powers, the power to take from the people while the people take a measure of power from the king. John, taxation is not unique to Britain, it's not unique to the West, and it's existed long before the Magna Carta. Why is the Magna Carta's tax system different from the others? Was it because it constrained the power of the kings? Because I know a lot of other uh, monarchies in the world, they never restrained their power. It was significant because it acknowledged something that had been understood and talked about but hadn't been written down in the way that the Magna Carta did, that if the king is going to tax the people, the king must have their permission. Now, this was absolutely revolutionary because uh, the idea that kings were appointed by God or even were God-like themselves was so significant in human history. But for the first time in the Magna Carta, we have a view that the ruler and the ruled must work in cooperation and in collaboration. So there might be debates about how much tax the government takes. There might be debates about what the government spends the money on. But it was an acknowledgement that citizens have rights and they can't be invaded. And this was why the Magna Carta became so important in the English Civil War as King Charles was imposing a whole host of excise taxes, of income taxes effectively on the people. And they said, but we have never agreed to this. And you can take this further and you can apply it to democracy as a whole. In a democracy, ideally we have the right to vote. Um, Sometimes we will get elected those who we don't vote for, um, but it still means we have the ability to participate in the process and that makes it 
legitimate. Similarly, the idea of the Magna Carta is that if the uh, people allow the king permission to tax, it somehow makes it legitimate and it makes it allowable. That's, again, one of the great insights of the Magna Carta. Well, I didn't realise until you told me that basically we're more taxed than the peasants of ancient Britain. Now, I thought that they were always dying under these coercive layers, uh, you know, levels of tax to go and fight the, the wars for the kings. But really, we're the ones who are suffering this time around. We should be the ones rebelling against this and asking for a tax reform. But I've got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back in just a second. Welcome back. We're here with John Roscombe talking about the Magna Carta and Western civilization at large. Now, a little bit of a, uh, a question from left field. The church parishes of Britain collected the names, births, deaths and marriages of all the people in the land. And this created one of the most complete and detailed historical accounts of the common people. Other nations around the world don't have this. And I personally spent some time going back through the old churches for my family and uh, tracing it back right to the Tudor period with quite a lot of ease. And it turns out we were selling wine in the uh, Henry VIII's court, you know, as you do from France. But taxation gave the peasants a way to connect to their personal history. Does having more than a thousand years of, of history for the common people on record impact the people of the West? I think it does in as much as it has us understand where we have come from. And one of the things that, and you alluded before to the attack of the left of our history on the idea of woke and what that might mean, is all of that is an attempt to disassociate ourselves, to remove us from our history, from our background, from our culture, from our tradition of freedom. And uh, the rise in the interest in family history, the, the fact that you'll go to any bookshop and the shelves are bulging with history books, popular history, academic history, uh, the history of the common people, just reveals that the more our history is attacked, in fact, the more people want to engage with it and want to understand it. And I think that's something really exciting. And you see it in just exactly as you've said, what people do with their free time, studying uh, what previous generations have done. Well, we often hear activists today complaining about intergenerational trauma, particularly minority groups, about how they had to move off their land. But European ancestors were continuously displaced, killed, enslaved and forced to fight in battles that they didn't understand for kings they didn't know in countries they didn't have any interest in going to. The system of taxation almost acts as a, a page number in history. But it is interesting to see how these external features can impact liberty. Even the most zealous of co COVID panickers would have to admit that COVID measures increased authoritarian behaviour in our governments and set us down a path of increasing control. Like, for example, we had COVID check-in apps to track and limit our movement of citizens within the economy, which has never happened in the whole of Western civilization. Now, this in turn softened the population up to the idea of digital identity, which is another infringement upon the free market economy of our commerce. But in the world of the Magna Carta, you talk about a city where people have more liberty than the rural communities and that the uh, when the big plague struck and killed roughly half the population, this made England 
more free. It turned the rulers into making decisions that increase liberty. So how does war and a virus in medieval England make them more free, whereas our response has been to make ourselves less free? Do you find that interesting? It's really interesting. And the plagues in Britain, the plagues in Europe, gave the workers power. It increased their wages. It allowed them to move between jobs and move between villages and, and towns, which they hadn't been able to do before. Uh, it empowered people with more choices and their rulers, their bosses, their employers or their guildmasters um, were then having to respond to that. Um, what happened in uh, the times in COVID, I'm coming to you from Melbourne, the world's most lockdown city outside of China. That's your, that's your subtitle, that, Melbourne, most lockdown city in the world. You've got that forever now. Congratulations. And, 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 and now about to be the most blacked out city in the world too. Um, what we saw was the government ruling by fear and we saw the government saying that they would do one thing but then doing another. And that is, again, the history of government. It's ever-expanding. As we talked about, 10% uh, of a tax on income or capital 800 years ago would have been outrageous. Now taxes are 50% or more. Uh, you mentioned the COVID app, Alexandra. So um, we were absolutely told, all Australians, that the COVID app, whether of the federal government or the state government, would only ever be used to manage COVID, to manage our health. Well, within days of it being introduced, we found out that police forces around Australia were using it for purposes that had nothing to do with COVID whatsoever, that were arguably unlawful and which they still have not apologised for. And then when, as you know, the authorities were asked, well, um, why are you using this power that you now have, uh, the authorities said, well, if we have this power, we think we should use it. So one of the things coming back to the Magna Carta that the barons understood very well is that um, you are always going to have to constrain the power of the state because the more power that it has, the more power it is willing to use. Well, that's so true and a good lesson there for the modern world. And the Magna Carta had a major impact on the kings and queens of England. They were forced to reform their powers, as you say, far more than the monarchs of other realms who enjoyed near absolute authority until their monarchies were dissolved. Now, I'm sure the likes of the great David Flint would argue that this evolution of power is why we still have a king today. Reading your work, John, it almost, I'm almost tempted to argue that the English kings act sort of like a free market locked in competition between ideas, military force, loyalty and political savvy. Now, underpinning their constant friction, you have the, the taxation and the support of the people. And that's the chief currency which all, think, uh, all kings are forced to compete for. Now, in this mess of kings, you devote an entire chapter to what you call the foulness of King John. And I quite like this passage, so I'm going to quote it from the Constitutional History of England, because I think it's great. Quote, he was the very worst of all kings, a man whom no oaths could bind, no pressure of conscience, no consideration of policy, restrained from evil, a faithless son, a treacherous brother, an ungrateful master to his people, a hated tyrant, polluted with every crime that could disgrace a man, false to every obligation that should bind a king. He lost half his inheritance by sloth and ruined, the desolate, uh, ruined and desolated the rest, end quote. 
Uh, John, I can think of a few contemporary prime ministers that might fit that description. Do you find it interesting that such an unloved king, full of mistakes, made such a valuable contribution to our world? Well, I don't think it's a contradiction at all because someone as bad as that had to give us some good. And one of the things that, as you mentioned, the great David Flint, um, what someone like David Flint I think would acknowledge is that one of the glories, and I'll use that term deliberately, the glories of British history is that concept of consent that goes back 800 years and arguably more than 800 years it has allowed um, the British, the um, United Kingdom, as we know it today, to develop relatively peacefully, notwithstanding its wars, compared to continental Europe. The change of British history, of the British parliamentary process, was by and large gradual, managed, directed and built on an understanding and built on some history and convention. The vast tumults of European history, and we'll look to the French Revolution, for example, are examples of systems that did not have a self-correcting mechanism within their processes. So when we have the French Revolution raging and we have debates about the divine right of kings, the British 100 years before had cut off uh, the head of their king and said, no, Parliament will rule. And I think um, coming back to history in our own country, we are so lucky that we have that tradition of British constitutional and parliamentary change, not the traditions of so many other places, unfortunately. Look, we've just got to go to a really quick break. We'll be right back in just a second. Welcome back. I'm here with John Roscombe talking about Magna Carta. Now, what we haven't really discussed, John, is its impact on our legal system, which has been extraordinary. Now, I know it's a tax document, but it also sets some precedences on liberty and correct judgments, including uh, a person has a right to be judged by their peer. They can't have arbitrary punishments placed upon them, and the punishment has to be roughly accurate to what their crime was, because in medieval England, you could end up in some pretty nasty scenarios if if you weren't careful. Now, I'm a little bit concerned because the state of our current legal system is leaning a little bit toward the whole witch-burning, trial-by-media kind of idea. And uh, even if you do get a jury, when you've got things like uh, political cults taking over the ideology of a country, well, how do you get a fair jury out of your peers when they're judging you based on ideology, not what you've actually done? What lessons can we take and what should we be remembering from the Magna Carta that perhaps we are in danger of losing out of our legal system? Well, there's a number of, of things. Um, so, for example, Chapter 13, one of the uh, key chapters and other chapters talks about the process of punishment. So the idea is that your um, charges must be known, that they must be understood, and also that there is a process. One of the things that um, happens today is whether you haven't paid a debt to the Australian Taxation Office or whether it's a parking fine or whether it's something more substantial than that, the process is the punishment. We have in modern times developed um, a whole system of opaque 
processes um, whereby, as we found out in recent years, for example, the Human Rights Commission might be investigating you for um, breaching the Human Rights Act and you might not even know about it. Increasingly, uh, people are having charges levied against them and they don't know who's levied the charge and they don't know precisely what the charge is. So this idea, 800 years old, going back to the Magna Carta, that um, if a charge is brought against you by the state, you are entitled to know what it is, you are entitled to know the process, and then you are entitled to a trial, as you say, of your peers. And then finally, if you are to be found guilty or convicted, that the crime is punished proportionately. So one of the things that governments have around the world have been doing is imposing vastly disproportionate punishments on relatively minor offences. And that was talked about 800 years ago, but we haven't learned the lesson from eight centuries ago. We are still allowing governments to do this to us. Well, no, I mean, if you're a conservative commenter, you're basically going to get hounded by the press, by the government authorities, by the human rights commissions. Human rights commissions who seem to have no interest in actual hate speech when it's on the street. These things are now being used as a way to subvert our justice system. And it's quite worrying to see that we're going backwards as a civilization, not forwards. Now, I just wanted to put this quote out here from Henry III, who signed a revised copy of Magna Carta because I think the language here is beautiful and people won't be used to hearing this. He said, and I quote, Now that we, out of reverence for God and for the salvation of our soul and the souls of our ancestors and successors, for the exaltation of the Holy Church and the reform of our realm, have our own spontaneous goodwill given and granted to the archbishops, bishops, abbots, priors, earls, barons, and all the realm, these liberties written below to be held in the kingdom of England forever. In return for this... Uh, grant and gift these liberties of other liberties, etc. They have given us the 15th part of all their movables. In other words, we understand that in taking tax, we are giving liberties and this will be done forever uh, and in honour of our, our ancestors, etc. Now that reverence for the past and considering consideration of the future, I feel is something that maybe we have lost. But of course, England didn't become a utopia. You know, the realms of the West are still fighting continuously. But I have to say, do you think that because of things like the Magna Carta and the way that we evolve rather than revolt against our system, that our system has weathered the storm of civilization better than most? Well, I think it has, but I think we also have to understand that it is so easy to take our rights for granted. Ronald Reagan famously said every generation must find its own freedoms and fight for those freedoms. I think that in recent times, in my living memory, freedom of speech has never been under such an assault as it is now. Freedom of thought here in Australia, um, I went through the arguments against Julia Gillard's attempts to censor the media some 15 years ago. No sooner had we thought that those efforts had been defeated than a decade later you have a coalition government basically proposing something very similar. I think one of the lessons from the Magna Carta, one of the lessons from, from the human history of the West is that our freedoms are never secure. And I think what the left understands better than the centre-right or better than liberals or better than conservatives is that it is a constant power struggle. 
that we are engaged in and those on the right and centre-right tend to think that battles once fought, once won, are permanently won. That is not the case at all. And I think it's only when we're being challenged, as we are now are being challenged, that we understand we must gird our loins again um, for the battle because these conflicts never cease. Well, we're actually in a pretty strange situation where in the last 10 years, mass migration has brought so many people into the country who have no connection to British history, no nostalgia for that idea of systems. They come from socialist republics. They don't uh, understand the strength of our Western democracies. Do you worry that under this constant assault of left-wing dogma and ideology that wants to completely undo the protections of things like the Magna Carta and our constitution, do you worry that maybe the scales are actually tipped against us and that we that it's actually in danger that it could fail? Like, do Australians need to understand that this is not a certainty? We may wake up tomorrow and the government may take all this away from us. Well, and we saw that under COVID that you were just talking about. I for a couple of years just didn't understand my fellow Australians. Uh, the stereotype of Australians as easygoing, libertarian, freedom-loving was turned on its head. And we have to understand the lessons from uh, that terrible time in our history. We have to understand that now uh, mass migration into Australia has um, given us a country with the highest proportion of people born outside of the country they live in in the English-speaking world, which is Australia. Now, we can accommodate migration if we have a strong sense of who we are, of our history, of our values. But what concerns me is we are running an immigration program, the highest level since uh, 1901, um, and we are welcoming people into Australia when we are saying to them, so often Australia is a racist country, Australia is an ugly country, Australia is a country of, that is not of the fair go, which I think is completely wrong. Um, but we need to understand that we can't have immigration uh, at these levels if we don't have a sense of who we are and why Australia is the best country in the world. So um, that's that's the lessons that we need to understand. And we and I think one of the glories of understanding and reading about the Magna Carta is so many of the debates we're having today about how do you control the government. What does the government do? What is it entitled to do? Are exactly the debates we've been having for 800 years. And for me, that's really exciting. And that's why um, an understanding of our history and of our culture and of our conventions and customs is so absolutely important because what we're talking about is not something that happened 800 years ago. It's about something that is going to challenge us today, tomorrow and in generations ahead. Yes, well, of course, you can buy John's book if you want to hear more about this discussion. Where can people get a hold of this? They can go to www.ipa.org.au. It's the IPA website and the book is on sale there. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. 
Remember, you can catch up on previous episodes of this show or check out other shows on ADH TV by heading over to the website or downloading the ADH TV app at the App Store. That's all from us today. Catch you next week.